Hi, I'm Jackie, and we're in a series that's challenging us to consider how women intersect with power, vulnerability, and leadership, both in the scriptures and in our own lives. Today's episode revolves around the rape of Tamar. One out of six women in America have experienced attempted or completed rape, and because of that, I recognize this conversation isn't for everyone. Some of you may need to bow out, and if that's you, then just jump to the next episode. Because today we're going to be talking about rape. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Welcome back. Before we go to the rape of Tamar, I'd like to lay out two important concepts in the scripture that are vital for us to frame this discussion on rape. And those two concepts are righteousness and justice. In Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4, it says, For I proclaim the name of the Lord. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteousness and upright is he. God is both righteous and just. And in the scriptures, those two terms are like two sides of the same coin. Righteousness means fairness, generosity, equity. It always refers to right relationships as God would have them be. It means doing the right thing in terms of the people that we live among. Righteous actions lead to shalom, full flourishing. When unrighteousness or unrightness happens, justice has to be administered. Justice is about making things right. It's an action word which includes just punishment for wrongdoing, but justice also means to give people their rights. It's giving people what they are due, whether it's punishment or protection or care. Someone needs justice because someone else is not living righteously. The, end, the means to the end of justice is the same as righteousness. It's to bring about shalom, full flourishing for all of us. In the Old Testament, every time the word justice is used, there's several classes of people that continually come up, poor, widowed, orphaned, these classes of people who are vulnerable in society. Here's an example. It's found in Zechariah 7, 10 through 11. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the immigrant or the poor. These are the people groups that held little or no social power in antiquity. I wonder if God were to list particular people groups in America today, who would he put in that Zechariah verse? Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress. Who would he put in there? Who would you put in there? 
the disabled, minorities, elderly, mentally ill, the poor, foster children. Tamar is a woman in Israel, and she is a princess, which means she has some status, power, and position. But as we will see, little of it when butted up against the status, power, and position of the men in her life. And it's there that she finds herself vulnerable, even lacking agency. I've started to use that word a lot in my teaching, agency, in particular in reference to women. It's a word that we say, but don't really always understand what it means. Simply put, agency is the capacity of individuals to act independently and to make their own free choices. And Tamar finds herself in a situation where she is vulnerable and lacks agency. I give this idea of vulnerability and agency a lot of thought in the last several years of my life. It might be because of some experience of, experiences I've had, like, like when I travel on the Greyhound bus. I, I will never forget one time. I, I travel basically from Dallas to Austin, Austin to Dallas, because I teach Bible studies in both those cities. And so I take the Greyhound bus back and forth. And I'll never forget this one time. There was an older man on the bus. He, I was already sitting down, and he came up the stairs and then started walking down the aisle. And, and you could tell by the way he was physically moving that he had a hard time walking, that he was struggling physically. He had a hard time hearing, and he ended up sitting right behind me. And just as the bus driver was about to close the door, he, re- he remembered, he realized he had left his medicine in the bag that he'd put underneath, you know, where they store the storage stuff underneath the bus. You know where that is, right? Yeah, so he had his stuff there, and he started to get a little panicky because it's a three-hour drive, and he realizes he needs his medicine. So he, he, he yells. Of course, he can't talk very loud. He's an older man. He, he says, can, can you stop? I need to get my medicine. And the bus driver was pretty gruff with him and just said, you know, sit down and kind of ignored him. And I realized, whoa, whoa, this is when I needed to use my agency, right? What little I have or what power I might have, what status I might have. And so I stood up and with a very confident voice, I let the bus driver know that we needed to stay still until we could get the medicine out of his bag, which we did. Three hours later, we pulled into Austin and he asked me if he could use my cell phone of which I let him use that, and he called this person to let him know that he had arrived. And I could tell by the conversation and his confusion, there was a misunderstanding. They weren't going to be there to pick him up. So then he needed to know how to get a cab, which he asked me. I told him. And he's walking across the parking lot to head toward a cab, and I see that his suitcase has opened up, and he's like, all of his clothes are dropping out, and he doesn't even notice He's very, very flustered. So I come, I help him get a suitcase back together, I help get him in a cab, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I thought about that man for a long time because I I realized he was very vulnerable physically, by his age, stage in life, the fact that he didn't have a phone, he didn't have any people to help him. He could so easily be taken advantage of, if not harmed. And I remember thinking, oh, how important it is that when people are in vulnerable spaces, that we are righteous and just. That's what that man needed. That's what we need. And that's what Tamar needed. And it's not what she got. Her story opens up in 2 Samuel 13. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love. That word love is a very bad translated word. It should be desire or lust. I'm not sure why the translator chose love. Wrong word. In the course of time, Amnon said to David, 
son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Notice the last sentence. He's wanting something he can't have. She's physically not available to him, and she lives in a protected environment, and she's beautiful and a virgin, and he can do nothing to her. Not with her, by the way, to her. She's under the protection, particularly of her brother Absalom. I know, it kind of sounds weird. You thought I would have said King David. Yes, but also Absalom. Because in antiquity, the strongest bonds, the most loyal bonds, were between a brother and sister. Not necessarily half-siblings, but full-siblings. And Absalom and Tamar are full-siblings. And that's why he's mentioned in verse 1. Right? They're stressing the relationship. So... He should, she should have the protection of her dad. She absolutely should have the protection of her older brother. And then in verse 5, we also find out there's another person in the story that should have been protecting her, just and right. And, and he wasn't. It's her cousin. Her cousin, who is King David's nephew, right? It's, it's actually from King David's side of the family, King David's brother's son. And because of that, he too was responsible to protect his father's line and his father's brother's line but he doesn't. Instead, he comes up with a plan of how Omnin can rape Tamar. And in verse 6, we read, when the king came to see him, Omnin said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat from her hand. And David sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Omnin and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Omnin. Now, if you have been listening to any of the previous episodes in this series, you already know that in antiquity, a woman's worth, her status, was based on her ability to marry, give birth to baby boys, and bring honor to her husband's name. And for a woman, she had a a price tag on her virginity. It impacted the bride price. It impacted the level or status of the person she could marry. If she was defiled, it, it ruined everything whom or even if she'd marry, if she'd even have children. Everything was dependent on her virginity. And so in verse 11 and 13, we continue reading. But as she was feeding him, he grabbed her and demanded, come to my bed with me, my darling sister. And she said, no, brother, don't be foolish. Don't do this to me. Such wicked things aren't done in Israel. Where could I go in my shame? And you would be called one of the world's greatest fools in Israel. Please just speak to the king about it, and and he'll let you marry me. Do you hear her? She's pleading. She's pleading for him to be righteous. If you're going to do this, at least do it right. Ask dad for my hand in marriage. And when I read this story about Tamar, I'm, I'm marked by the fact that sometimes when we see people who are in vulnerable spaces and places, we tend to assume that they made bad choices or they aren't very intelligent or wise or courageous. But here's Tamar challenging that thinking, isn't she? I mean, she's rising up in the middle of a traumatic situation that's happening to her, and she's offering a plan that can save her and him. And Omnen ignores her. In verse 14, we read, he raped her. Now, let me say this about rape. I'm not a rape expert but my daughter actually is a rape advocate. And there are a few things I know about rape. 
First is that most victims are raped by people they know. Rape is easier to commit in situations where the aggressor has the advantage of structural domination, like we saw with Harry Weinstein, right? Yes. Most rapes are planned. This goes to disprove the theory that a rapist is usually provoked by a woman's flimsy clothing uh, or is he's just overcome or, you know, by his overpowering physical urge. Not true. Most rapes are planned. Rape has nothing to do with sexual gratification or satisfying some natural urge. Sexual violence is simply the imposition of domination and authority the humiliation, and sometimes the annihilation of someone who cannot retaliate. Amnon raped Tamar, and then he loathed her. He wanted to dispose of her. He doesn't even use her name in the text. He addresses her as if she's some disposable object. In verse 15, he basically says, arise, be gone. In other words, we could say that is, throw this out. And again, in verse 16, she pleads, No, indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than anything you've even done to me. So now she starts pleading for justice. If you're going to do this unrighteous act, then at least act justly. Don't throw me out. Carry out the law and marry me. And that was the law. She had the law on her side. Deuteronomy 22, 28 through 29 states, If a man meets a virgin who is not engaged and seizes her and lies with her, And they are caught in the act. The man who lay with her shall give 50 shekels of silver to the young woman's father. Notice, the money goes to the father. And that's because the man has ruined the father's property. And it says she shall become his wife. Because he violated her, he will not be permitted to divorce her as long as he lives. So she calls on him, give me my rights. What's due? The protection and the care. And once again, he ignores her and he throws her out. In verse 19, we read, Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went out wailing as she went. Her actions, she's letting those around her know that she's been violated. The virgin princess has been raped. Her actions show her despair, her grief, her trauma, her hopelessness, her humiliation. She has been violated. I'm a pastor of women, and that means I've heard many stories of women who've been violated, whether that's domestic violence, rape, lots of, lots of different things I've heard. And I wonder, how, how do we handle it when someone comes to us and shares with us that they've been victimized? How, how do you handle it? Has it ever happened to you? Has anybody ever confided in you? How did you handle it? Why did you handle it like that? I asked a bunch of women about this, what they've come to learn. And it was interesting. One woman said she learned that you just need to listen, that you need to listen without making any judgments to try to figure out if they've done anything to, like, you know, cause it or whether they're really telling the truth, that you just have to be neutral. Another said they had to learn to not, like add in another story. Oh, I know so-and-so. That also happened to so-and-so. You know how we do that? She had to let that woman's story be just her story. And I was sharing a few things that I've learned along the way as a pastor to women over these 20-some years. 
I was sharing how at one time I had a young woman come to me. She was 17, and she shared with me that she had been raped at a party. She'd gotten really drunk, passed out, and in the morning found out that an older boy had raped her. We were sitting across the table from each other, this beautiful, young, vibrant girl. And I, I just touched her hand, and I said, I just want you to know I am so sorry that this happened to you. And she very quickly responded, oh, oh, it's just not that big a deal. Have you ever noticed that, that we do that? I've actually noticed it often, that when someone is very vulnerable with you and they share something, they, and, and you immediately call it what it is, they, they quickly want to cover it up. Like it's, 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 it's just an uncomfortable feeling. And I've, I've seen women do that over and over again. Oh, it's just not that big a deal. And I've kind of come to a place where I'm like, no, it actually is a big deal. And we're going to call it what it is. And so with this woman, I looked her straight in the eye and I said, yes, yes, it is a very big deal. And then I just let it sit there in the silence. I've also learned that when someone shares something like this with me, they feel very vulnerable and naked in front of me. They don't always know what to do after the conversation's over. Like if they see me again in a hallway somewhere or at the grocery store, I can tell they're very unnerved. They have just been naked in front of me. And so I've learned over time that I, I pray to the Spirit and say, look, how is that woman doing today now that she's shared that with me? And at times he'll say, yeah, you need to put a robe on her. And so what I do is I just text or call or email and say, hey, you know, something like, I just want you to know it was a privilege that, that you, I counted a privilege that you would consider me worthy enough to share that with. You are, you are extremely courageous for sharing that. Just something to put her clothing, right, her robe back on her. People feel really vulnerable when they share with someone that they've been victimized. I would love um, for us to learn from each other how to, how to handle this. If, if you have encountered this and you have some ideas you'd like to share, I would really encourage you to go to Jackie um, Always Unplugged Facebook group and just share with us what you've learned. It would, it would collectively make us better at doing this. Tamar rips her clothes off and puts ashes on her head, and she's letting people know she's been violated. Absalom asks her about the rape, and then he takes her into her home, and he tells her, don't say anything. Your family, stay quiet. Oof. I wish that only happened in the story written right here in this book, but it doesn't. I know you. I know several of you. You've shared how your brother, father, uncle violated you. And when you told, you were told, either it didn't happen or don't tell. Yeah, don't tell. What happens when a person is violated and they're told to stay silent about it? Can you think of a time when you were silenced? Maybe not around this same kind of violent act, but just a time when you were silenced. What were you prevented from saying? How did that make you feel? It's even painful to think about right now, isn't it? It's interesting. When I spoke about this with a group of white, privileged women, myself included, many of us shared stories about being silenced and, and the painfulness of it all. And we acknowledge that we actually have high agency what must it be like for those who have little or no agency most of their life? 
when we are not allowed to speak, when we are shut up, it feels like our light is being extinguished. It's actually dehumanizing. Tamar was silenced. And once again, she's violated and traumatized and victimized. You've heard it said, I I read this one time and I thought this was very fascinating. You've heard it said, be a voice for the voiceless. It sounds good and noble, but but we should pause before saying it. People are not voiceless. Everyone has a voice. And we don't need to speak for them. Instead, we need to understand and address the processes that steal their voices or the reasons that they aren't being heard. Let me say that again. Being a voice for the voiceless, it sounds good and noble, but we should pause before saying it. People are not voiceless. Everyone has a voice, and we don't need to speak for them. Instead, we need to understand and address the processes that steal their voices or the reasons we aren't hearing them. In verse 21, we read where King David heard what happened, and he was very angry. Yep, he's in his palace. He heard and he's angry, but he doesn't do anything about it. It's interesting, in verse 21, the author invokes David's title, calling him King David instead of like Tamar's dad. Why does he say King David? What does the author want us to know? Well, probably that King David has the power and the responsibility to enforce the law, to act justly. Remember, justice means to bring about just punishment and also protection and care. And David did nothing. Why do you think he did that? Nothing. It's a really good question to ask. It's one we're going to ask ourselves in just a minute. Why do you think he did it? In 2 Samuel 3, 2 through 5, um, It lists the six wives and the six sons, no daughters are mentioned, but there are daughters, that that King David had. Amnon is the firstborn son, which means he has the highest status, the special place in the father's heart. There's inheritance and property that all goes wrapped around this. That might be one of the reasons. It also might be that David had taken Bathsheba just a few chapters before. How do you condemn a son when dads acted the same way? And then it might also be that he was complicit in it. He feels complicit, right? He sent Tamar to Amnon. So maybe he feels some sense of guilt or responsibility for what happened. We have to ask the question, why did King David stay silent? And then we also have to ask, why do we? Whether it's silence over sexual exploitation going on in our churches, in our culture, or, I mean, if you're not sure what that is, go ahead and Google Church 2 movement. You'll see, I realize not everybody's up to speed on the fact that it's happening, like sexual exploitation and abuse is happening in the Protestant church, in the Catholic tradition, it's happening. Whether it's sexual exploitation, the killing of a black boy who's running down the street like a mod, why do we stay silent? That's a really good question. It's one we really have to ask ourselves. I don't want to get involved. Someone else will do it. Fear. If I speak up, I, I could become a target by those in power. And by the way, that's true. You could. We could also just feel like there's so many areas of injustice and feel overwhelmed and, and can't do them all. And, and I get that. It reminds me of something I just recently read um, on Scott McKnight's Jesus Cre- uh, Creed blog. It's written by a guy named Mike Glenn. I don't even know who he is. I'm sure he's very important, but it's not relevant. 
but he was talking about the pandemic and how we could deal with life in the pandemic. And it made me think about this. This is what he said. To begin, let's go back. Again, let me remind you, this is about the fact that we get overwhelmed with too many injustices around it. How do we address them all? And here's what he says. To begin, let's go back to the very beginning and remember human beings are introduced into God's story as stewards. Adam and Eve were placed in the garden to care for it and to tend it. Most of us assume God gave Adam and Eve the whole world. Well, he didn't. He only placed Adam and Eve in the garden. While God retained ownership of the garden and Adam and Eve were managers. The first thing the pandemic reminded us is that we're only responsible for a very small part of our world. We're not in charge of everything. We have a limited sphere of influence and responsibility. Our garden is only so big by so big. Everything else simply isn't in our garden. The first thing you have to do is discover the limits of your garden. We do this by saying yes or no. Our no established perimeters around the garden, our yes determines our focus. I love the idea that we aren't in charge of everything, just our small corner where we live and move. I think that's helpful when we are thinking about all the injustices we are seeing and experiencing in our world. We can get overwhelmed and end up doing nothing, going silent. But what if we could just start to say, what's our garden? What's the perimeters of our garden? And just do what we can in that small corner. So what results when people are silent to the injustices? And is God silent? Where is he in this? That was some of the questions I had. Well, in Tamar's story, silence about the vi- silence ends up leading to more violence, right? We have Absalom, who just ends up killing his brother Amnon. Silence leads to more violence. And what about God? Where is he in this? I had to ask myself that question. So it's something interesting that someone pointed out to me about this book. And it's the book of 2 Samuel, remember. The first 10 chapters are about David's successes and the rise of the nation of Israel. The last 10 chapters are about David's failure and the decline of the nation of Israel. And in the middle, someone call, would call that a chasm, which is a which is a unique way of writing in the Hebrew. To put it simply, what's in the middle is the point. And what's in the middle of 2 Samuel are these two stories about Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11 and the rape of Tamar in 2 Samuel 13. And in the middle of those two stories, we have 2 Samuel 12, 10 through 12, where Nathan, the prophet, rebukes King David and predicts his downfall. I find that very interesting. 10 chapters of success, 10 chapters of failure, two rapes in the middle, and in the middle of that, a warning, a rebuke, a predicting of a downfall. What do you make of that? More so, what do you think it says to us about God and about the injustices that we see around us that don't seem to be accounted for, where there doesn't seem to be any justice being done? Does this have anything to say to us? I love what one woman suggested. She said, you know, these women, Bathsheba and Tamar, they they are somewhat voiceless. And she said, isn't it interesting, in the middle of of it all, he is their voice. And then there's downfall. What does that say to us when a church is silent about sexual abuse, child abuse? What does it say to us when we have governments that misuse and are unjust? Is there any warning there? I'm not quite sure 
But I think it's a very fascinating thing for us to ponder. Tamar's story doesn't end with a pretty pink bow wrapped around it. I wish all of things in life did, but, but they don't. In fact, we're kind of left with her. In verse 20, the author leaves us with this. So Tamar dwelt, and she was desolate, in the house of Absalom, her brother. I know women who've been raped, and their rapists have gone free. And it's painful. And it's in that pain, as I wait for God to act, that I've learned to pray. Particularly a prayer of liturgy for women. And I would love to just pray it real quick over us right now as we close. It's from the Anglican tradition. It's the liturgy of women. And here it is. Hear us, Lord Jesus Christ, for they are stripped and beaten as you were stripped and beaten. They were humiliated and used as you were betrayed and shamed. For the beaten girls and the battered women, blamed and bruised by angry men, we cry out to you, bring justice. For the young girls given and sold in marriage and for unwilling brides with no way out, we cry out to you, bring justice. For the women raped as a weapon of war and for the children they bear in grief and shame, we cry out to you, bring justice. For the victims of rape who are killed or taken their own lives and for the rape survivors who will live with the scars, we cry out to you, bring justice. For the girls denied access to education, told they're stupid or worthless or expendable, we cry out to you, bring justice. For the girls and women sold and tricked into sex trade and, and for sex workers exposed to disease and violence, we cry out to you, bring justice. For the mothers whose children are taken away by armies and governments, churches, or family members, we cry out to you, bring justice. For the girl children who are unwanted and rejected, the first to be aborted or abandoned, the last to be fed, we cry out to you, bring justice. For the women bashed in their own homes and for their children who see and hear the violence, we cry out to you, bring justice. For the women trapped in destructive relationships, manipulated, controlled, justified by their abusers, we cry out to you, bring justice. For the women who hide their bruises, and lie about their injuries for fear of the next attack. We cry out to you, bring justice. For the women bullied in their workplace, belittled, underpaid, threatened with losing their jobs. We cry out to you, bring justice. For the women in prison, abused and abusing, beset by poverty, mental illness, and addictions. We cry out to you, bring justice. For the women attacked because of their sexual identity, targets, for physical or spiritual assault. We cry out to you, bring justice. For the women and girls denied religious freedom, forced to submit by custom or law, we cry out to you, bring justice. For the older women, frail in body or mind, fearful of violence, manipulation, or neglect, we cry out to you, bring justice. We cry to you, Lord Jesus Christ, for our sisters, our daughters, our mothers, ourselves. Bring justice, bring healing, bring hope. Amen. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.